This actually is a really special episode because it is our second to last episode of season one. Our last episode, we're going to sort of do a recap, talk about what we've talked about, talk about what we've learned, um, and talk about what you guys liked. So if you reach out or comment on the episode, leave comments, send us like social media messages, maybe we'll talk about them. Um, And also, if you are looking forward already to season two, um, we have some exciting things in the works that we've been planning for a while, but in order to really help that stuff to come to fruition, it would be great to get some financial support. So uh, you can do that on Patreon. It's a pretty cool uh, platform where you can uh, pledge monthly to artists or creators that you think are doing something special. Um, hopefully we fall into that camp. And yeah, future things coming to Patreon as well, like our Matt episode and potentially some stuff in between the seasons if you're worried about really missing us so much. So yeah. Hello, hello Periphery. Hey, you all. I am. I'm talking to you all. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Anyway, we at the periphery, we talk a really big game about being very concerned about privacy and security. So much so that that class, Jess and August and I love so much that unfortunately Carl, you know, started to bring up those old wounds. You did not, or you got rejected. We'll say it. Everything happens for a reason. (laughs) I'm very happy with where my life is right now. (laughs) But this... This, this leads me to the question, how secure are each of us really? Is the periphery on their cybersecurity game? It's funny you mentioned that, Afi. The other day I found this article on PC Mag. Oh, how interesting. What, is this, what does this article say? It's called 12 Simple Things You Can Do to Be More Secure Online. I was wondering, I don't know what it means to be secure. I feel relatively secure. Do you feel insecure in your daily life? <laughs> you know, uh, it depends on what kind of security we're talking about, Carl. But when it comes to <laughs> But when it comes to when it comes to cybersecurity, I don't know. I feel fine, but who knows. So I thought why why don't we stack ourselves up, see how we compare to this these 12 simple things that apparently uh, would secure ourselves in the cyber world. What is the, what is the first one, August? <laughs> Well, uh, who here has installed and updated uh, their antivirus software? And it's an end. It's an end connector. That's right. I I cannot say that. I I think we. I believe we had to do that when we first joined the Stanford Wi-Fi. Have you updated? But I think I uninstalled it actually because it was really (laughs) annoying me. It was so annoying. They had notifications. That's that's interesting. I thought that we. I thought that we had um, automatically had some antivirus stuff with you know like on Mac. Do Macs right. even get viruses? Uh, they, they, I believe they do, but it's very rare, uh, or at least rare compared to Windows. Well, like, like Mac computers get viruses, but the iPhones are set up so that like each application sort of is a closed universe, so they can't really, it can't really like spread to the rest of your device. So let's say mixed results on the antivirus. So like, if you don't know for sure, then it's probably a zero. Hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, I definitely am. I'm so not. are we averaging? What are right, we averaging so, right now? I mean, maybe some, some of us attempted, others didn't. Others think that the Mac is inherently secure. We're not sure about that. I'm going to give ourselves. I'm going to give <laughs> us. That's already a mistake. I'm going to give us a Assu- C plus. Assuming that you are secure is probably yeah. the first mistake. <laughs> so uh, we are. We're off to a good start. Number two, 
Have we explored the security tools <laughs> that we have apparently installed? In depth. Okay. In so, depth. Next. <laughs> okay, uh, F. Uh. Uh, unless anyone has any other comments. Third, have we used unique passwords for every login? Afi, F. <laughs> I, I, okay, don't so. you expose me on the. I already said I'm insecure. Okay, don't need any more. Insecure in multiple ways, yes. I think I've gotten better at this. I actually had kind of a, like, just cybersecurity, like, wake up call, you know, a month ago where I changed a bunch of my passwords. So I'm, I'm, I would give myself a solid, like, C on this one. Okay, okay. I think I have, I think I have, like, an A on this because I use um, I use a software like an application called one password and it helps you gen- you have one master password and it helps super secure helps you generate like these 24 character randomized like you guys saw those I sent the social accounts for the podcast you saw that's how all my pot that's how all my passwords are. we have this uh, document of all of our passwords for our social media and all of them are incredibly complex except the one I made yeah. <laughs> which is well, <laughs> oh, wait, okay. one other thing I'll say about this. Okay, Jess, you've got an A. Carl, you got a C. Afi, you've got won't yes. be disclosed. And uh restricted and credit for Afi. I'm gonna oh. give I'm gonna give <laughs> <laughs> niche one Carl. Law school jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I uh I'm gonna give myself a B. The reason why is because I use password managers too, but I use password managers that are integrated into my browser. For example, Microsoft Edge, my oh, favorite browser. Oh yeah, uh, Microsoft I, Edge. I have not only I not only use the uh, internal password manager that's installed in the browser. I also have a plugin that allows me to generate random passwords of very long or varying lengths. And this is not sponsored, correct? Not sponsored at all. In fact, this plugin's. Pro- I don't think I, I don't know who owns that. Uh, I don't know who owns Microsoft Edge. And uh, that's basically. <laughs> That's basically so. So I think I, I have a feeling. I'm not exactly sure. We'll find out from experts. I, I feel like using our browser is a little bit less secure in some ways. Uh, number four, get d- who here has gotten a VPN and uses it? I have an A plus here. I do. Nor VPN. I have, I have an F on this one, unfortunately. I don't use any a VPN. Mm, shame, guys. August, you're saying you use a VPN all the time? Uh, yes, unless it interferes with some kind of internet-related thing that I need to do. Sometimes it blocks connections for various things. For example, printing. Sometimes it's hard uh, using a VPN. I use a VPN like on public Wi-Fi networks if I'm doing something sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's probably... Maybe Jess has the A+. That sounds like a C... No, no, B, no. B minus, B. All right, number six. Number five. Oh, number five. Uh, this was alluded to earlier. Oh, this Who one. uses I love this one. two-factor authentication uh not enough i've actually installed it for some other things as well now Mm. and you know it really gives me that peace of mind yeah yeah i use duo uh but there are many um there are many different uh two-factor authenticators um i think i use it for all of my social media accounts and google as well um you use duo for those yeah Ah, A plus for me. Oh, this is real role model. <laughs> Setting the curve over here. Number six. Who uses passcodes even when they are optional? So I oh, so on your phone, for example? Yeah. Yeah, I use one yeah. on my phone. Yeah. Same. Same. Pretty much everything out of a passcode. Yeah. Mm. Oh, here's an option. Here's an example. Here's an example. Do you use passwords within your phone on certain applications? Like on notes, you can lock certain notes. Do you lock your notes? 
Yes. What else, what else you lacking, I Jess? I, I have nothing to hide on my notes, unlike August. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I don't use that. What? Because I shared my one note once. But there was nothing sensitive there. Oh, right, yeah. I do lock a note that's titled important, and there's some important stuff in there. Yeah. But mostly it's just like old like passwords at with, this point. like, you know, financial things, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like credit card numbers, things like that might go into a lock note mm. or something like that. Mm. Uh, okay, well, I'm going to give us all a solid B minus there. How about that? That's an A. I mean, come on. The criteria. I think we, an we, A minus. We met the B-minus? criteria. What? What? How, 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 it's a it's a check mark. All right. Okay. Okay. A. Okay. I'm t- I'm taking an A for myself. All you right. all take an A minus if you I want. I mean, Afi desperately needs that A because I do. He okay. needs to raise his average. I okay. do. Okay. I mean, great inflation. His is GPA a problem, is struggling right now. But whatever. Uh, okay, great inflation. <laughs> number seven. <laughs> who here pays uh, wirelessly with their smartphone? Every time. Payment? Apple Pay? Every time. I use it as much as I can. I don't have Apple Pay. That's pretty retrograde. Well, not everyone has an iPhone. That's true. Okay, well, you know, I think we're probably pretty good there. Wait, so I'm sorry. This is saying that it's a good thing that we use mobile payments. But surely, mm-hmm. is this perfectly secure? I don't know. We'll find out. Um I mean, this is PCMag.com, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, number eight, who uses different email addresses <laughs> for different kinds of accounts? Yeah. For some. Depends. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. 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 I'm, an, I'm going to start using the periphery email address for all my accounts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Putting that on the resume. Carl, you ordered something else from Amazon. <laughs> like, on, why on, is that? Why? On my resume. <laughs> periphery. <laughs> For all inquiries, please contact the periphery. Uh, I have to say, I used multiple different emails, but it kind of just, it wasn't for security reasons. It just happens, you know? I'm excited for the next one, mostly because I think it helped me get a clarification on a pronunciation thing. So what is number nine, August? Nine. Who here clears their caches? There it is. Thank you. Um, Me, when my computer's acting up. Mm. That's about it. Mm. So like once a year. Mm. I have to say, I never do this. Yeah, ditto. Once in a while. So mm. this is a bad one for Periodically. us. Periodically. That's a D, guys. D plus. I don't know. Something comes to mind. Like if I like cheated at Scrabble or something, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, I just have to like text someone back. And then I look up like that Scrabble website to get like a great word. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll like clear my history. Uh, wait, do you do you clear your cookies uh, to, to cover your tracks? Uh, yeah, like I just clear. I just clear my cache. Cache, whatever. Right. Like, I understand people clearing their search history. I mean, that's more directly personal and reveals a lot of what you're thinking. Clearing your cookies, I think that takes a level of sophistication. Um, not a ton. Cookies are being fa- phased out, actually. We might talk about that later. Have you noticed the trend? Um, like, you have to accept them on, like, every website now. That used to not be the – I mean, you used to see it every now and then, but, it, like, you can't go anywhere now without a pop-up, which is really, like, the stuff that we like, although no one has, no one is actually reading it. Right. Well, it's interesting to hear – I was – I feel like I've been noticing that, too, in recent months, and I thought maybe it was CIPRA, the new California privacy law. But, Jess, if you're experiencing that, too, oh. then uh, I think yeah. it must be some it's other everywhere. movement. Uh, maybe in response to some kind of global regulation, GDPR or something. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, Ten. Who here turns off the save password feature in browsers? No, that's my lifeblood. I, it's I so convenient. Um, 
that's never going to be a yes for me. For most of them, yeah, I do say Honestly, that. I think it's worth a risk at this point. <laughs> like, we should stop this list. It's worth a risk for me. I, I get a fucked. All oh, right. There's two more. <laughs> I don't want to hear anymore. We're almost done. Afi, I know it, the truth hurts. Afi, you're going to do great on number 11. Okay, number 11. Who here does not fall prey to clickbait or phishing scams? This is really just a generational question. Mm, mm. Guys, I have to say, I fell for a phishing scam. Oh, there. Oh, no. The, we need the details. Yeah. Well, August, you're supposed to be our tech guy. I, I, see? <laughs> see, look, Worst guys. Tech guy ever. We are all tech guys, in my, in my view. But the thing is, this phishing scam was actually very good because it was sent by Microsoft as a fake phishing scam. So it looked slightly suspicious. And as soon as I clicked it, it sent me to a, a, a web page that showed me the signs that could have detect- let me know to look at the email more carefully. For one, when the name of the sender doesn't match with the actual- No, no. What, Wait, was, what, August, what was the substance of the scam? Don't tell me about the fish. Wait, August, I, August. How'd you get scammed? August, not to put you on blast, but I actually had the exact same situation today at my firm. Oh, wow. I got one of those test phishing emails as well. Yeah, yeah. And I called the IT help desk before oh. clicking any of the links oh, because shit. I was suspicious. Oh, God damn it. And then they, congra- oh. they congratulated me for having passed the test. Damn it. So I was- uh, Oh, wow. Oh. I, I have not felt this accomplished in, in I years. I don't need the class. God. Carl, I feel so inferior to you right now. So I, I think I should get an A plus on this. No, I that's think, fantastic. I Wait, think that's an August, A plus. August. Yeah. How embarrassed did you feel? I felt pretty lame. I felt kind of stupid. I mean, like, I thought, I appreciated that the website that was showing me where I went wrong wasn't too condescending, but I wish I had caught it. I really did. Because, like, looking back, I saw, aha, there are some clear red flags that I just wasn't thinking. And that's the most, for the most part, when we're going through emails, we're just clicking through them. Uh, as know, long as you learn from your mistake. <laughs> I, Carl, next time I'm going to submit it to you just when, to make when sure. you see an email that doesn't look right, call IT. You really have to. Yeah, um, you really have to. Okay, number, 11, number 12. This is probably, um, this seems like pretty significant to me. Who here protects their social media <laughs> privacy? Okay, and here we're talking. One, maybe this one cracked me up because I was like, what a non item. I mean, <laughs> are you cyber secure if you, number 12, are secure online? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, here they're talking about privacy settings, right? And nobody really, a lot of people don't deal with those things, which is while a lot of privacy settings are frustrating, like, Companies don't really mean it, or they're not exactly clear about what entails. I don't even buy that. This thing says you can drastically reduce the amount of data going to Facebook. Can you? Can you? Well? Have you ever tried? Can you? Well, you know, it really is just a matter of opinion unless we get some facts. You know, we're going to have to um, look at actually how Facebook operates internally. So without further ado... We're going to kick off our cybersecurity marathon. Go ahead and do your stretches, get hydrated. Or if you don't care that much about cybersecurity, I guess you can just skip to the next episode. But we think you should care. And here's why. Hello, Justin. Thank you so much for joining the periphery. Uh, We are incredibly excited to talk to you. And we kind of just want to start off hearing how you became a cybersecurity expert. You're 23, like the rest of us, yet here you are at Lennon Council, Wired columnist, uh, and kind of a go-to, at least on my LinkedIn feed, for anything cyber tech policy. So I'm just curious how you did that. And um, yeah, 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to, to be here virtually with you all. Um, I've had a long-standing interest in technology, but also policy issues, political issues, social issues. And for a while, I thought of those things as totally separate. I would have to pick one or I'd pick the other, and that would be it, basically. But then a bunch of news events happened, really, where I started realizing that there's actually a huge overlap between those two circles. We had reporting on the Stuxnet cyber operation against Iran, the Snowden leaks, later on Cambridge Analytica, all these other kinds of things where I realized that actually there's a huge area uh, of work that needs to happen at that sort of tech policy and tech ethics intersection. So when I started doing this work, it was very technically focused. I did a bunch of cybersecurity and privacy computer science research. But the more I started doing policy, I started using that knowledge to translate things to people understandably, to work with government agencies or with ethicists or what have you. I just found that way more rewarding. So, um, you know, st still use my computer science background every day, but have not or don't really code anymore and that kind of thing. And um, instead really love, you know, working on internet policy and cybersecurity and, and tech ethics stuff. And as your knowledge base has grown, you know, what are the, what are the, what is cybersecurity in 2021? If you had to find one or two or three things that we should be thinking about uh, as our cyberspace changes, you know, what, what are the threats? What are the things that we should be orienting ourselves uh, in the cyber world? We've definitely gotten a lot more dependent on our technology platforms, whether that's Zoom or Slack for work <laughs> and learning. Uh, yeah, it's just Zoom fatigue now. Um, you know, everyone was using social media more during social media, dating apps, right? All kinds of things people are using anyway more, doing online food ordering. So just like Amazon's growth, by the way, for example, has been huge during the pandemic. If we look at how many local businesses and families have been hurt by their stores closing, and this giant uh, e-commerce platform has just made a gazillion dollars because everyone's ordering things. So our dependence has gone way up. With that, obviously, we're sending more sensitive stuff over email. We're doing work from home. We're doing more online banking. So with that dependence, there have been a lot more hacks, breaches, massive increase in phishing attacks against people who are on email all day and clicking on things more than they were um, and who probably don't have a corporate cybersecurity team for their home router, by the way, so have more exposure on the defensive side. So that's really been a problem. We've also seen a lot more ransomware attacks. It's the second thing. In the last few months where hackers encrypt a computer network and lock everything down and basically give the entity there, whether that's an individual or a hospital in, in a really uh, dangerous case, 24 or 48 hours to pay this $10,000, $1,000 million Bitcoin ransom, or they delete all the data. Um, so that's another really big problem. The third thing I'd say, though, is the Biden administration has invested a lot in boosting cybersecurity. They've hired a bunch of new cyber uh, staff at the White House. There are entirely there's an entirely new cyber office in the White House now. Um, 
And there have been a bunch of executive orders and investments and other things through Congress that have happened in cybersecurity, in you know, outreach to small companies, in making sure the federal government actually complies, because half the time uh, the government will mandate a security standard, and then there is a survey three years later, and like 50% of people have half of it done. <laughs> Um, so just those kinds of very boring so sounding. So IT at my firm is always yelling at me. Exactly. And it's government. It's so slow to get <laughs> just because of the bureaucracy. It's just so slow. So there's a lot of stuff like that, that, that has been good in the last few months. Justin, I, I wanted to hear from you about how we got here. It's, um, a really, uh, perilous world, uh, in, in terms of cybersecurity, uh, these days, but it also seems to be uh, the culmination of a long and, and, and accelerating trend. And you mentioned Stuxnet earlier and not Petya. Could you talk to, me, to, talk to us about uh, how these attacks emerged and, 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 and how, did, how this all started, really? It's a great question because the history is often lost, I think, when we talk about technology, oh. uh, for, evidently. Um, so I would go back, I would say, to the 1950s when the U.S. government first invested in what then became the Internet we know today, which is that during the Cold War, the Department of Defense wanted to build a communications network that was resilient in the face of failure. So what this meant was they wanted the network where quite literally, if the Soviet Union launched a nuclear strike against the US mainland and say 10 of the nodes in this network were taken out, communications could still be routed around the point of that nuclear strike so different groups in the US could still communicate. So that was sort of the founding vision for this network was we need to have it decentralized so that communication is always being routed. It can't easily be stopped, cut off, that kind of thing. So over the following decades, the U.S. government slowly stepped back from this network as it grew. More researchers, academics got involved. Stanford back like with ARPANET when it was yeah, like right, exactly, yeah. So it started and it became a research network. Researchers you know, from Stanford and MIT, let's say, would share text, email type uh, communications with each other across the country. And then, of course, we get into the 70s and 80s where we see uh, the Apple Lisa computer and all of these uh, other consumer technologies. Um, but all to say, come the 90s, the U.S. government really completely stepped back from the Internet. It started to become global at this point. Other countries were adopting it. But the reason I mention all of this uh, is democracies had a very particular view of the internet as this happened. And that view was generally that the internet was a democratizing force, that it was inherently good, that by giving people this open communication technology, we would be enabling people to have greater freedom and, and equality and, and things of this nature. So there's, there's two things I, I do want to note about that worldview. One is that this very closely aligned with the political agenda in the United States at the time. So in the 1990s, then President Bill Clinton famously commented 
that uh, China trying to control the internet would be like trying to nail Jell-O to a wall. Which, of course, as it turns out, which we'll get to in a second, they've nailed a crapload of Jell-O to the wall. It's a bit naive. naive. Uh, how, how much we know? But this was <laughs> yeah. around the same time that the Clinton administration was pushing to expand the trade relationship with China. And people were saying, what about human rights and what about this internet thing? And he was saying it's not a big deal. And this continued into the 2000s uh, under the George W. Bush administration. If you go back and read, I think it's the maybe the 2003 or 2002 national security strategy, everything's about the war on terror, right? Terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. In there, it asserts, this is not necessarily true, but it asserts it that countries who try to control their populations can't have strong economies. They will not be successful. They will at some point or another collapse. And so that's the first thing to note is that democracies who saw the internet as inherently democratic and liberalizing, it did align, at least in the US, with this political thinking. And the second big thing to note is Silicon Valley culture, uh, which has this very mystical, vague link that's imagined between technology and progress, um, whereby creating new technologies were making the world a better place, quote unquote. Um, and obviously, you know, for example, the fact that this industry is run by billionaire, white, cis men, et cetera, right, contributes to the fact that that is ignoring a whole host of social and political and economic factors. So I, I just want to make those comments because democracies didn't think that about the Internet randomly. Uh, and I say that because, like with Silicon Valley, people still think that way. But largely democracies, that's how they viewed it. This really started to change in the mid-2000s, which is how we get to where we are today, which is that authoritarians in China especially, but also Russia, Iran, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, Ethiopia, started to crack down on the internet domestically. They censored, they surveilled, they literally would shut down the internet sometimes. When I lived in Egypt, I, I was there during oh, Arab yeah, Spring. Okay, yeah. A big organizing tool was Twitter. And yeah. then they shut the internet down. And then the only way that we could communicate uh, in the, at all was through landmines because they, they, they couldn't control the internet well enough to stop the, 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 the uprising. Yeah, that's fascinating you were there. Um, yeah, I, had, uh, I have a, a colleague who was uh, in another country a few years after that where uh, in a country and everything. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's, so you had stuff like that, right? Like you just said, you had... The Arab Spring, where uh, in the United States, many media pundits falsely created this idea of like a Twitter revolution and somehow put the agency back in some company that did nothing rather than the people on the ground who actually organized. But, but then you saw, right, the, the governments responded. They cracked down anyway. You had election interference. You have power grids turned off in Ukraine, right? So that's all the stuff that gets us to where we are today, which is democracies are realizing that the internet was let to develop with basically no regulation. So there isn't cybersecurity built in, there isn't privacy built in. And we've also been ignoring the ways that this can be used to hurt marginalized groups, to oppress uh, entire countries. So it's really sort of been a coming of age moment um, for the last few years now around the internet. That was very long and rambly, but no, that's that was, hopefully no, that, that answers that your question. <laughs> uh, Justin, you talk about this like kind of 
ideology of of the internet that uh, emerged, you know, in in toward the end of the Cold War, uh, as we began to really uh, trust the internet and see it as a progressive force, and also uh, the government began to retreat. Uh, but at the same time, you know, while that made us vulnerable. Um, what about the U.S.'s own role in increasing our cyber insecurity? What about the U.S.'s role uh, uh, with, with Stuxnet, with, that, uh, with the decision to unleash a, a weapon like that uh, against uh, an adversary, um, the first, uh, which I believe was the first of its kind? What do you think about the impact of, of an event like that? Yeah, Stuxnet's interesting. So the, the formal name within the George W. Bush and Obama administrations for Stuxnet was uh, Olympic Games was the name of the operation. And this was reportedly, I have to say, but this has been so widely reported at this point that that's, I just assert it, um, that the U.S. was working with Israel to develop cyber capabilities to curtail Iran's nuclear weapons program. And specifically, they were looking at a centrifuge uh, plant in Natanz, which is where... Uh, Iran was enriching uranium, that it was not supposed to be enriching. They were doing this in a bunker that was buried way below the ground, was not disclosed to uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, blah, blah, blah. So that was uh, what the U.S. decided to do was uh, essentially put this malware onto this underground bunker that wasn't even linked to the internet and have it very slowly, very quietly, basically manipulate the physical equipment that was enriching the uranium to damage it over time. And so what this resulted in is the operators at this plant would see that maybe there was a malfunction or they wouldn't get any error at all, but the equipment was suddenly wearing down much faster. So it basically was meant to slow uh, the role of their nuclear enrichment. But as you said, this was really a big event because two major powers were launching malware against a nuclear enrichment facility, which is not exactly the same thing as, you know, stealing somebody's email login. Um, so that was, that was a really uh, significant uh, cyber operation. You talked about how democracies and authoritarian governments sort of approach cybersecurity differently. And um, you, you wrote a super compelling article in the Washington Post a couple years ago about how the Russian and Chinese governments specifically use the threat of cyber terrorism to justify state censorship. Uh, we hear a lot about cyber terrorism in America in the media. Do you think that the American government is in part do you think that the American government is propagating a narrative to support increased surveillance or maybe even censorship? So censorship, uh, so terrorism definitely, as you said, is used by the uh, Russian government, the Chinese government to justify various uh, crackdowns on the internet. Now, obviously, we've also seen terrorism broadly in the United States, used as justification for widespread domestic surveillance programs, all kinds of human rights, torture, rendition, all kinds of things. Um, so I, I don't think that uh, it's comparable in the censorship sense to what China and Russia are doing. But I agree that we do hear a lot of cyber terrorism discourse in the U.S. There's going to be a cyber 9-11, a cyber Pearl Harbor, 
there are policymakers I'll talk to, for example, that are constantly worried about uh, terrorist attacks against physical internet infrastructure, for example, which is a concern and could be severe, but also mostly some of these things like submarine cables are mostly just damaged by like some person driving a ship who didn't look at the map and see there's a cable there and they just run into it. So <laughs> there's stuff like that where I think the discourse is disproportionately focused on, which again, reflecting right broader political stuff, but is, is disproportionately uh, focused on this idea of cyber terrorism as opposed to like cyber crime or surveillance issues from companies or all these other things that um, we should be concerned about as well. So, um, Justin, you've, you've given us this really interesting trajectory about how the, especially in Western democracies, governments kind of stepped back from the internet. It became more decentralized and perhaps therefore it became more vulnerable. Um, what I'm wondering about now is given that we've seen some recent changes and of course the Biden administration has bolstered or has tried to bolster defensive capabilities, but what is the role for government in a democracy in the future to ensure cybersecurity? Because I do think we we like some of the features of a decentralized internet. And although maybe the discourse around the internet inherently being a liberalizing force was probably overly idealistic, still we like some of those qualities that the internet has to offer. So what is the role of government now and in the future in order to kind of balance a decentralized open internet with cybersecurity and privacy? That's a really good question. And that is exactly the kind of thing democracies are trying to figure out right now. Uh, there has been some agreement at the strategic level about this in 2019 uh, at the G20 in Osaka in Japan, for example, there were three core issues that the Japanese government put forward where they were like, all right, this is going to be what the G20 is about. And one of them was uh, data flows. So that was really significant. And what happened out of that is that the U.S. and Japan and a bunch of other countries signed this agreement about data-free flows with trust, they called it. And this was, and some countries did not sign India, for example, which is an interesting thing we can get into. But this document was this high-level agreement that we want, kind of like you just said, this decentralized, open data flow system with some protections in place in some cases, and that wasn't very specific about what those protections are. Um, and that's sort of where we are today is the issues are really operationally, what do those protections look like? Of course, democracies are not you know, all standing up and saying we want to have the kind of filtering of the internet they do in China, for example. But there are lots of security risks, privacy reasons, all kinds of other things why you might want to have more controls on the internet than we have now. Gen it was January 6th or 16th, was it 6th? That shows yeah. like, a, you know, some social things about, you know, maybe you don't want everything <laughs> in the Wild West online. Uh, it's part of the reason... India did not sign on to this document based on what these protections might look like or just what they are purporting to protect. Like, what? why might a country or an, an, a jurisdiction not want to join these, you know, global initiatives to kind of get some type of standards and regulations? 
India is a really interesting case study for a lot of the stuff we've been talking. Okay, so yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> for what? Why did they not sign the Osaka Agreement? It basically was a view that uh, the U.S. is already the dominant player in the internet space, and India wants to carve out its own data regime separate from that. Uh, part of this stems from the fact that for a couple of years now, there has been a privacy bill circulating in the Indian parliament uh, that the Indian government says is going to be the fourth way of data governance. So we have um, the EU model of data governance, which is GDPR. We have the China model, which is a whole raft of different regulations. We have the US model, parentheses, do whatever you want. Um, Patchwork. <laughs> no privacy, period. Um, and <laughs> India was saying, we want, we are going to come up with our own regime. And they explicitly said, this is going to be a global South regime. Um, and there was this view among a lot of uh, folks there that part of the reason India needs privacy regulation is not just inherently for its own sake, but to push back against digital colonialism, it's often referred to as, from the United States, the fact that you have large American tech companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc., going into this country, collecting all kinds of data on its citizens, and then all the economic value is extracted back to Redmond, to Menlo Park, to Cupertino, whatever. Um, and so there are a lot of tensions there, again, because it's such a vague thing to say, we want open data flows, but we need some protections. Again, that's an important recognition, but when it comes down to what does that look like in practice, you have lots of countries um, who are lower resourced or other things who are not going to want to sign on to something that's just a bunch of wealthy liberal democracies, basically. Justin, this is very interesting. Um, so I'm from Germany originally, and you know, I'm wondering, because in, in Germany as well, and I think throughout Europe, there is some skepticism toward uh, the American tech companies and there's a recognition that they have grown dominant and there are efforts in Europe to establish a more homegrown um, set of companies that can offer social media, search, etc. Um, and so what I'm wondering is, and you know, so, so these things are obviously intertwined both with geopolitical concerns, economic concerns, and the recognition that having these companies and having these capabilities, these digital capabilities, is going to be crucial for any com country that wants to, um, you know, be a big player on the world stage in the future. So even among the Western democracies or democracies more generally, there seem to be um, differing interests. So to what degree is, is a is a regime um, or a governance model that is shared among a democracies um, to kind of propose or counter some of the autocratic models? To what degree is that feasible? And 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 can we make compromises? And can we still leave a certain degree of in that model? Small question. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, as you said, there's a lot of divergence between the U.S. and the EU. Uh, a great example is that 
at the same time as this is, I think, in maybe March of this year, or April, at the same time as President Biden was making comments about how the U.S. and the EU are going to be partners and promote democratic technology, nor you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, right around that same time, the U.S. Trade Representative released a giant report uh, that, among other things, called the GDPR a trade barrier to American companies and was blasting the GDPR for putting too many controls, apparently to like telling people that you're collecting data on them and too many controls on them. So that right there, I'm like, okay, here we go, where at the strategic level, it sounds great politically to say, we're going to build this coalition against techno-authoritarianism or whatever the term is. But then when we go to operationalize it, U.S. tech companies whose lobbying influence is enormous. Google and I think it was Google and Amazon or Facebook and Amazon quite literally now outspend every other company in the country on lobbying. Um, more than Exxon. I mean, so like these companies who have enormous lobbying influence in the U.S. immediately are standing up and saying, oh, no, 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 we don't like GDPR. We don't like the EU's new AI proposal. We don't like that regulation, this regulation. You have... The EU Court of Justice, obviously, in 2020, invalidating privacy shields. So now thousands of businesses are left wondering where they stand with transatlantic data transfer. And the Commerce Department right now is in you know, sort of the middle stages of renegotiating an agreement. Um, but the reason I highlight those examples is to say within the governments, you see contradictions, right? An EU politician, a parliamentarian could get up or a, you know, the German chancellor or whomever and make the statement, and then the court in Europe says something different. Or in the US, the president says this, and an agency says something different, and a tech company says something different. So it's complicated. Is there a lot in common, more in common than with Beijing? Yeah, obviously. But I think you're asking the right questions, which is, if we're trying to make this work, if we're trying to get other countries to get on board, if we're trying to combine the geopolitical weight of the EU and the US, there is a lot that has to be um, reconciled, like the fact that we don't have any privacy law in the U.S., right? Like, that's immediately a stopping point for a lot of this discourse. Yeah, so uh, we talked about how big tech really has their thumb on the scale in a big way when it comes to cyber policies, privacy policies. I mean, I think we can all agree that the current state of regulatory affairs, I mean, really this regulatory vacuum leaves a lot to be desired in the United States. But private companies are sort of forced to lead the way for the rest of the country. I mean, they basically have to improvise. Uh, and I think some of them go above and beyond. You know, I, I think in part they're trying to comply with GDPR, but I think they're also sometimes operating aspirationally uh, and trying to set a higher standard in the United States for privacy and consumer rights. So I don't know. Do you think that the way forward for us is going to involve cooperation between the government and these private domain experts? Or do you think that's a recipe for disaster? There's definitely a lot of deadlock that goes without saying. Uh, I think we already do rely, the government already does rely on these companies so much, um, or is dependent on them or is influenced by them, right? Because of, like I said, the lobbying power and these other things. Because oftentimes Hill staffers are so well, most of the time, right? So overworked uh, and and overwhelmed with things that they turn to employees at, particularly large tech companies, 
to get their input. So I don't think that's a good thing. I think we've seen what's happened when, you know, in any sector, large companies who are not yet regulated are spending millions of dollars right before regulation is coming out to shape it. Um, but the other thing I'll say is that I think a lot of smaller and medium-sized companies get forgotten in this process. And we see this with cybersecurity, right? You can have a large company that spends a gazillion dollars a year on cybersecurity, and maybe their system's relatively very well protected. But if there's a small software provider, say in Texas, like with SolarWinds, that doesn't have the money, the personnel to invest in that cybersecurity, all the attacker, in that case, the Russian uh, Foreign Intelligence Service, all they have to do is locate that small business as the weak point in the supply chain, and then they're in to these big clients who have spent all of this, this money on it. So those, those smaller groups are often forgotten, I think, who don't have the cybersecurity resources that the larger players do. And the other reason that matters is because when you are a larger player, you're concerned with a different you're concerned with different classes of risk that other players are not concerned with. If I'm a small app developer, I'm not probably particularly worried about, you know, my networks being penetrated by a foreign intelligence organization or like a military intelligence service. That would be really weird for them to like hack my Sudoku app or something. I don't, you know, I'm not sure what they're like. They must be bored at work. I don't know why they're stealing my app. Like, but when you're alert, right. But because of that, a lot of the media conversation sometimes does shift to these big incidents, which are important to cover, right, when a foreign government hacks a big defense contractor, hacks a big energy company or law firm or whatever. But when we see those headlines, sometimes we do forget that every day small companies are being hit with basic stuff like phishing, basic stuff like people guessing a bunch of passwords at once because they don't know that they should turn on two-factor authentication. So there is this whole lower level of cybersecurity stuff that, you know, we have to remember, right, is, is really important for those smaller and medium-sized businesses. Well, I'm, they're not the only ones who need to turn on two-factor authentication, for, but uh, don't want to go on too long. We, we, we do have a marathon today, uh, but thank you so much, Justin. I feel like we... We learned a lot. This, this was, was incredible. Yeah. Like, truly. <laughs> hey, Offie. How's it going? It's going well. It's 12.24 in the morning, about two and a half hours before this episode comes out where I'm at. And what, how about yourself? <laughs> I guess I'm saying. Yeah, doing well, doing like, well. Not quite as early. Uh, an, a big day or weekend of traveling, so. A big weekend of traveling. Are you back in California? Yes, yeah, so I'm back in California. I had kind of, I had a 10-hour um, flight delay yesterday. Oh, my God. So, sort of scrapped my whole day, you know? Well, fortunately, that means you had plenty of time to listen to our interview again so to <laughs> recap it because we recorded this one kind of a while ago, uh, back yeah. in what September. Justin was one of our first interviews. It must have been, yeah, I think it was September. And I, I have two overarching thoughts. Yes. One, very interesting interview. Mm -hmm. Two, 
not at all related to what we teased in the intro. <laughs> Which we have an excuse, okay? We are sorry for, you know, misleading a little bit. Although we did, it was still cybersecurity, but not so much as it relates to us individually. Yeah. And that is because our other expert who was supposed to be on this episode, Matt Deep DeVoe, we uh, we fumbled the bag so heavily. We forgot to instruct them to record, and we forgot to record the Zoom itself. And we ultimately yeah. had nothing to show for it, nothing that we felt proud of because the audio was so awful. But the interview was so good that it's on our Patreon, Patreon slash The Periphery Pod. Uh, check it out. Become a conversationalist. But... Nonetheless, yeah, the, the content the content was good. It was awesome, but the quality was lacking. It was lacking, um, but nonetheless. So this so we didn't have a marathon. We had a half marathon. We had a half marathon, and hopefully we can get part two next season. But nonetheless, yeah. Justin gave us a lot of really good, awesome information. Um, particularly, I think what stood out to me most is kind of related to what we talked about last episode, uh, or what you brought up about Peter Thiel's perception of. Blockchain versus facial recognition, which is really just kind of algorithmic algorithms. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, how Justin illustrated or re- re- retold this history of democracy's view of the internet versus non-democracies of how there was this inherent um, posture of the internet that we assumed of our technology back when the internet was just becoming, you know, Web 1.0, and how naive that was. But also how interesting it is to, you know, look at ourselves and how we just develop, how we impute our ideologies into the technologies that we build. Right. And how our how the technologies that we build, even though we might not have or the inventors might not have some agenda when they're creating the technology, they automatically mm-hmm. then fall into those political camps. They're sort of co-opted yeah. by people that perceive some sort of opportunity to either yield a certain amount of control or potentially like kind of free up certain things that before were a bit more uh, restrictive. So I agree that that part's super interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that was, that was awesome. But, you know, in order to not totally lead you all, not totally mislead you all, we, we do have a few cybersecurity tips personally, which I think we gave some in the beginning anyway, because we, we went through, PC bags recommendations, but I mean there are a ton of resources now that are uh, out there that make that can make your life more cyber secure. I mean, one and I, I'm Jess, you said this one, but I'm going to stay on the mic because I feel I have the authority. Do you use Firefox? Yeah, no, we've talked about this because people gave oh, up, people oh, were you criticizing use Firefox still. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no, you have way more authority than me because I I caved. I'm on Chrome now. No, no. <laughs> Well, you know what? Like sometimes, sometimes like I end privacy. up on Safari because, like, the Apple ecosystem. Like sometimes, you know, it's just hard to get out of it because stuff links right to Safari. <laughs> yeah, Safari. So Firefox, um, Firefox is awesome. It has the most robust privacy policies that you could ask for, and uh, oh, no one uses you. them. Like literally, less than ten percent <laughs> of the population <laughs> uses them because we've all moved over to, to Google Chrome. Which- yeah, I think like one cool thing about using 
Firefox. And there's even like a Firefox private browser that's like even more private that you can get on your iPhone. Um, it will like update you as to how many like ad blockers or like site site trackers that it has blocked for you. And it's mind blowing. I actually think Safari does that now too. But yeah, we also talked about um, like VPNs. And I will say like, I think, I think it's interesting how people are kind of hesitant to pay for software, like pay monthly payments for like recurring software. I think like you can buy a VPN for like seven bucks a month. Like ExpressVPN, I think is like six something a month. That's like a couple cups of coffee. Like it's, and it's totally worth it. If you think about, if you're concerned about security, uh, it's, it's not a bad price. Oh no, I don't know if I'm that concerned. <laughs> I mean, maybe you don't have to be that concerned. I think, I think it's a good thing. I think it's worth it. Well, I mean, you know, on some level, this is partially not, you know, I think my concern and my, my failure to adhere my behavior to that is partially like what we talked about and before we did the privacy episode where privacy has a design, you know. Firefox, I don't have to worry. I, I liked Firefox a lot because I didn't have to worry as much. Whereas other entities, and I won't say who, but probably the ones that you're browsing on because I know the market shares of these browsers, they don't give you that option to consent or not consent to having your, you know, personal mm. identity. Yeah, that's um, true. Easier to access. That's true. Um, that's true. And it is also interesting, like, I, you know, Firefox is like my reason I'm a bit skeptical that a ton of competition will save us from the privacy concerns and cybersecurity concerns that we have. Yeah. <laughs> because here we are, we have, there are really no antitrust actions against browsers, generally. Yeah. You know, they're against parent companies, perhaps, but not browsers themselves. And so that implies to me that we have a ton of competition there and everyone's not choosing Firefox. They're choosing by and large, the one that's most egregiously violating or um, uh, increasing the risk, the cybersecurity risks of us there, as, there as we do need more choices. I also want to say, I, I mentioned in the intro something about iPhones being secure automatically. So this thing, this is a thing called sandboxing. So it, it is Apple's, and like, it's not just Apple that uses sandboxing, but it is their attempt to sort of protect or isolate one app at a time. However, if you jailbreak your phone, this doesn't work. So for people that have jailbroken their phones, you are not safe. Um, and in terms of the Mac, what I said about the Mac being automatically secure, that was wrong. I looked it up. You should get some, you should get some uh, malware protection. Uh, I definitely share that propaganda. Um, so, you know, come to periphery, cybersecurity, privacy, and also factually accurate statements. Uh, <laughs> anyway... I think I think we've done it for the cybersecurity episode, Jess. And also, hopefully, you know, we did not we did not acknowledge the fact that August and Carl are not here today, or at least here for this closing portion. And that's because they're doing their moot court briefs, which is more of the law school rat race things. And so they're not here, but they're here in spirit. And also, they don't they don't know they're recording this, or they don't know they'll hear this tomorrow. But good luck to you too. Yeah. Proud of you, killing it. Yeah. Good luck, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right.